For seven years, I taught the same course at Asbury University, and this class was from, for non-traditional students. So these were men and women who had completed a year or two of college and then had to drop out for any number of reasons, health reasons, family reasons, money reasons. But they found themselves in a job or a career where now they needed to finish that college degree. And so Asbury said to those students, you come to campus every Tuesday night for the next two to three years, and we'll rotate classes, and you'll get your degree done. Just come every Tuesday night and do the work. And so by the, these students would go through this program together as a cohort. So they were together for three years straight every Tuesday night. But every six weeks, they would get a new class and a new professor. They would encounter me toward the end of their time together at Asbury University. And I would give them uh, a number of assignments. But one assignment I gave them was... I want you to come to class next week, and I want you to give a five to seven minute presentation on an obstacle that you've had to overcome in life. And I would give them examples like maybe, maybe when you were learning to write, you flipped your letters, like your R's were backwards, or, or maybe you had a speech impediment or you stuttered. So whatever, whatever it is, I want you to think of two or three obstacles, and I want you to pick one and come ready and give this five to seven minute presentation in class. Now, they had been together two to three years, and one of the things that I wanted them to see in the assignment was that trust and safety create vulnerability. Trust and safety create vulnerability. And because they had gotten to know each other and they were already sharing life together because basically they had become a small group every Tuesday night for two years, talking about their lives, talking about their families, talking about their faith, their work struggles before and after class, during break. And every single student over those seven years knocked it out of the park and did not surprise me in the least. And they didn't talk about school issues they talked about the big stuff. Every single student, every single year. Uh, stuff like, you all know me and you know so much about my life, but what you don't know is that my dad was an alcoholic. And when I was 10 years old, my mom finally decided to take me and my two brothers and leave. Or um, my mom had a string of boyfriends and when I was 13, the boyfriend that she had that year couldn't keep his hands off me. And it was the first time that I was abused. Um, my dad was really disappointed that I was not a boy. He so wanted a boy. And I was the fourth in a string of girls. And all my sisters were perfect. And they got straight A's. And, and one sister was the captain of the volleyball team. And I was just... I couldn't get my act together, and I had ADD, and I had all this other struggles, and my dad would tell me all the time, you're lazy, you're stupid, why can't you be like your sisters, you're fat, and I just took that with me, right, the rest of my life. So these Asbury students aren't unique, are they? In fact, their stories are eerily similar to your story and my story. Because all of us have these kinds of stories. Um, the biggest imprint on our lives is often what we did or did not receive from our parents. Now, my parents were married once, and they stayed married until they were parted by death. My dad consistently worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and 
As I've learned recently, helping her grocery shop, she did a bang up job coming up with groceries on practically no money. Some of you are, you know, because of inflation there now, you're telling the kids, listen, there are no snacks. Mr. Inflation said no. <laughs> okay. But she did some amazing things on not a lot of money. But my mom was angry when I was younger. Uh, she was angry when I was a kid. She was mad at the world. She was mad at her mom. She was mad at God. My dad was passive. And by the time I was a school-age kid, was completely hands-off. And so there were a lot of ingredients in my life that made me unsure of myself and made me unsure of whether or not my parents really loved me or really accepted me. So when I was really young, you're going to find this surprising, I tried sports. I did Little League. I tried out for football. Can you believe it? <laughs> Can you believe it? I remember my mom saying, they are going to kill you. <laughs> Thank goodness I didn't make the cut. <laughs> right? I tried. I tried. I, I tried all kinds of things. I tried being the obedient and compliant son. Ask my brother. He can tell you. Uh, Mark always did everything that was asked until he hit about middle school. <laughs> Uh, I tried keeping my room clean, and none of that seemed to work. But when I was in seventh grade, I figured out, man, if you just pay attention in class and do the work, like, you can get A's. And so I started getting A's in everything all the time. And then I discovered that if you get lots of A's all the time, people will clap for you. People will be impressed with you. And so that put me on a path to achieve. The more I achieve, the more people will clap. The more I ring the bell, the more people will like me. And so today, I want to acknowledge that a big part of our identity is forged when we're children. And it's forged based on what we receive or don't receive from our parents. And we know this as adults, because as adults, we'll say things like, I'm just like my mom. I've got a heart the size of Texas. I miss empathy like anybody who's got an issue. Like, they are drawn to me like the sun. <laughs> or I'm just like my dad. Man, I'm a penny pincher. I could probably buy a second house today if I wanted to, but I'm not going to spend that money on myself, right? Or then, then there's the negative things. Oh, I am so like my mom. I am so impatient. I cannot wait for anything. And I'm always trying to manipulate and get things to happen because I just can't wait for things to unfold. Or I don't understand why I'm such a hothead. I'm just like my dad. I told myself I would never be like that, right? So we, we have language and phrases to describe this. And it shouldn't surprise us that we receive a curse from our parents or our family of origin because our first parents, and Adam and Eve, lived under a curse, didn't they? They decided that they couldn't trust God. They decided that they had to figure out things for themselves. They decided that they wanted to determine what was right and what was wrong, and they wanted to be in charge, so they took matters into their own hands. Today, I want to tell you that no matter what you received or didn't receive from your parents, God can take a curse and turn it into a blessing. God can do that. God can take a curse and turn it into a blessing. Tucked away in the book of Genesis is the story of Abraham. I love the story of Abraham, okay? Uh, Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. If you've never read through the book of Genesis with grown-up eyes, I encourage you to do so. And just look at the family dynamics that play out in this man's family. 
with his wife, with his children, with his grandchildren. It's messed up. And yet God promised that through him, right, that God would bless the nations of the earth, okay? So Abraham, as it turns out, was a liar. His son Isaac was, guess what? A liar. His grandson Jacob became a liar, a big liar, <laughs> okay? And so as, as we read through Abraham's life, sometimes uh, with a lens of positive and negative family traits and behaviors, you're going to be shocked. Well, Isaac has, uh, marries a woman named Rebecca, and together they have twins. So just like the Holland family just had, okay? Only, only Isaac and Rebecca each have favorites, okay? Rebecca favors Jacob, who is the second born. He's a homeboy. He's a thinker. He's a ponderer. But dad, Isaac, he favors Esau, the firstborn. He's hairy. He's redheaded. He's a hunter. But Esau, Esau rocks the family boat. Uh, mom and dad made very clear to Esau, we want you to marry a woman within our clan. Stay within the clan. And so Esau marries a woman from outside the clan, not just once, but twice. And then Esau, for reasons that escape me to this day, gives away his birthright. Uh, there's this trading and there's this scene in Genesis, but really what he's saying is, I don't care about this, I don't want this, I don't need this. Not important to me. And, and so those are the two sons. Now, Esau came out first, so he's the older. So we know this. I have three biological children, John, Jill, and Maddie, and I always name them in that order because you always start with the oldest and go to the youngest. That's how we do things to this day. But in the story of the Bible, their fortunes get reversed, and Jacob always is named first. So this is Genesis chapter 27, and we're going to look at a few things in this story. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind, he called for Esau, his older son, and said, My son, yes, father, Esau replied. I am old now, and I don't know when I, might, when I may die. Take your bow and a quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish and bring it here for me to eat. Then I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. In the Old Testament, a family blessing conveyed a couple of different things. God's stuff and relational stuff. God's stuff and relational stuff. The God's stuff is stuff like protection, provision, favor, success, wealth. The relational stuff is stuff like love and acceptance. Now, among the Hebrews, this blessing was given to children at a special occasion. And Isaac signals that he's ready to give this blessing to Esau. And while Esau is out hunting food for the celebratory meal, Rebekah, his wife, hatches a plot. Verse 5, but Rebekah overheard what Isaac had said to her son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, listen, I overheard your father. Bring me some wild game, prepare me a malicious meal, and I'll bless you in the presence of of uh, the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. Go out to the flocks. Bring me two fine young goats. I'll use them to prepare your father's favorite dish. 
then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. So Rebecca hatches this plot. I'm going to set it up so that you can receive this blessing and we'll trick your father together. Esau's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. If dad finds out, I'm toast. I could get cursed, which is worth, worse than death. I don't want to be cursed, mom, right? And so she says, no, no, don't worry, okay? And so he goes out and does what his mother asks, okay? Jacob does some things of his own, though. Um, if this thing goes south, uh, he recognizes, I could get in a lot of trouble. But there's also this dynamic of, well, maybe to get God's blessing, I have to do some of these things. And so he cuts some corners. He does some things that maybe you and I wouldn't do. God will understand. Surely God will understand. And then the story unfolds. So Jacob took the food to his father. My father, he said, yes, my son, Isaac answered. Who are you, Esau or Jacob? Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you told me. Here's the wild game. How did you find it so quickly, my son? Uh, the Lord God put it in my path. So this, this goes on, and, and Isaac uh, asks three different times, are you Esau or Jacob? Who are you? Oh, I'm Esau. <laughs> I don't know if he had to fake his voice as well. Uh, probably not because the text tells us that dad recognizes the voice of Jacob, but then he feels hair that he's tied to his wrists and arms. And he goes, well, you're hairy, so you must be Esau. And so Isaac blesses Jacob. Uh, from the dew of heaven and the riches of the earth, may God always give you abundant harvests of grain and bountiful new wine. May the nations become your servants and may they bow down to you. May you be the master over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. All who curse you will be cursed and all who bless you will be blessed. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and almost before Jacob had left, Esau returned. Esau prepared a delicious meal and brought it to his father, and he said, Sit up, father, and eat my wild game so that you can give me your blessing. But Isaac asked, Who are you? It's your son, your firstborn son, Esau. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who gave me the wild game? I've already eaten it, and I've already blessed him. And when Esau heard his father's words, he let out a loud and bitter cry. Oh, my father, what about me? Bless me too. Many sons and daughters have wanted a blessing from their family and instead have gotten a curse, okay? They got passed over. They got left out. And every child, I don't know if you know this, but every child is born with some basic needs, need for safety, connection, and empowerment. Safety's pretty straightforward. Connection, I'm going to be loved and accepted, empowerment, that I have agency, that I can will and do and choose. And what happens is in families and in family dynamics, what's supposed to be a blessing from parents to children ends up becoming a curse. And when you operate under a curse, those three basic needs get twisted and there's a shame response. 
So one of the things I want you to see, Generations Family, is that uh, the way that the curse bears out in our lives is often through shame. Shame and guilt are different. Guilt is, I feel bad about this thing I've done. Shame is, I feel bad because I am wrong. It's that scene from How to Train Your Dragon where he says to his father, you just pointed to all of me. That's shame, okay? And so uh, the shame response with safety. So if, if you grew up in a home where safety wasn't an issue or where people up and left you, the shame response that we often take into our adulthood is this fear of abandonment. And it drives our relationships. And sometimes we'll do crazy things where we almost uh, treat, mistreat people to get them to leave to prove to us that they're going to leave anyway. And we do these kind of crazy things. One of the ways that uh, if you have a high sense of uh, shame, responsive abandonment, is that you can compensate it through narcissism. Um, this feeling that we're not enough, not lovable enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, and so we protect ourselves and our issues and we ignore the needs of others. And then when it comes to this need in family for connection, to be loved and valued, if we feel if we didn't get that in the right way, the shame response is rejection. And so there's a couple of ways that that plays out. Um, by the way, the, if you've ever grew up in your home and they said to you, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? That's rejection, okay? And so we compensate through it a couple of different ways, self-gratification and addiction. So we'll use alcohol, drugs, porn, fitness, all of this kind of stuff to connect, but it doesn't deliver. Another way that people try to compensate through that is they'll just be like, well, I'll just try harder. I'll try harder. I'll do more. I'll show them, right, that they should accept me. And then the other one is this empowerment. In some homes that are really highly controlled, you don't have a sense of agency. You don't have this sense that you can do things, and so you're humiliated. And often that, uh, those people become adults where they can become perfectionists or OCD. They're always trying to control their environment because deep on the inside, they feel like, I can't. I can't, I just can't, I'm not able, I'm not capable, okay? So I want you to see that the curse that we inherit because the world is broken affects all of our families. Now, some of you came from families and you would say, Max, I came from a very loving home. I came from some very loving parents and it was pretty healthy and it was pretty remarkable. And I would say, that's awesome, that's great. But there are little aspects of the curse, even in those families. And often you don't discover them until you marry or have children of your own. Because then you're like, oh, <laughs> there's that thing. There's that thing from mom and dad. Oh, there's that thing from grandpa or grandma, right? And that's how this plays out. Again, every single one of us looks to parents for a blessing. We look for unconditional love and acceptance. We look to be seen and empowered. And by design, that's to prepare us to hear about a heavenly father who loves us and accepts us, right? But broken parents tend to produce broken children. And what should be a blessing turns out to be a curse instead. So let me ask a couple of questions. Do you want a particular curse to define you and your relationships? 
Do you want a particular curse to define you or your relationships? And then secondly, what if, what if God can take a curse and turn it into a blessing? What if? There's a couple of ways that I, I want to beg and implore you to begin to take the first step that will allow God to change a, a curse into a blessing. And that first step is a decision to forgive. Taking a curse and putting it into the realm of blessing, okay? Breaking free from a family curse begins with a decision, the decision to forgive. We've tended to define forgiveness at generations as deciding that someone who has wronged you doesn't have to pay, okay? Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation or restoration. Forgiveness is not a magic trick that we use to force others to be our friend again. It's a decision. And it's simply deciding that whatever they've done, whatever they've taken, whatever they've said, they don't owe us anymore. Forgiveness, by the way, is not optional for those of us who follow Jesus. Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. In other words, what Jesus just said in the Jewish, to, to translate Jewishness into uh, American speak, you need to forgive infinity. <laughs> <laughs> infinity, that's what that means, okay? Forgiveness is not optional for us. And forgiveness does not require an admission of guilt or an apology. This is what we see in uh, Luke. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Did any of the people at the bottom of the cross have a change of heart in that moment and go, oops, we are so sorry, man. You are totally innocent. This whole thing is wrong. Holy cow. I was caught up in the moment, Jesus. What were we thinking? They were shouting Barabbas and I got carried away. Like, did anyone do that? No. <laughs> Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, forgiveness doesn't require an admission of guilt or an apology. Forgiveness precedes feeling. Sometimes people will say to me, Max, I just don't feel ready to forgive. And I usually say the same thing. You're never going to feel ready. <laughs> You're never going to feel ready. The irony of that is that when you begin, when you make that decision for the first time, I am deciding today through God's power to forgive my mom, to forgive my dad, to forgive whoever it is. That decision, over time, you'll find that all of a sudden you have these feelings of freedom. The feelings come in the wake of the decision. It's not the other way around, okay? And then lastly, I want to remind you that forgiveness involves grieving. Because they've done something, because they've taken something, there's loss. And part of forgiveness is recognizing and grieving that loss, okay? Why am I asking you to forgive? I'm a kayaker and I'm on Kentucky's waterways a lot. And in the summertime, at six in the morning before work, or sometimes as the sun is setting after a long day of work, I'll put my boat on the Kentucky River for an exercise paddle to get into shape, okay? 
And I'm going to tell you that there are long stretches of time where the Kentucky River is actually clear and beautiful. I can put my, yes, it is. I can put my paddle in the water. I can see six, eight feet down. But when it rains, and when it rains a lot, all of that water comes into the Kentucky River, and it becomes muddy and murky. It becomes swift. It becomes deadly. That's what happens to our inner life when we have unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is like this torrent of water that churns everything up, and you can't see. You lack clarity, okay? Forgiveness clears the water. That's what forgiveness does. It clears the water, okay? So step one is make a decision to forgive. The second step is this. Seek to understand your parents' story. I have since learned my mom did not have it easy. When she was two years old, her mother took her to live with her aunt and said, I don't want you anymore. And she lived with her aunt until she was 16 when her mother decided to take her back. Her mother was married and divorced six times. I've heard my mom tell the story in Catholic school that she told the headmaster and the nuns the third time they changed her last name, no, no, we're not doing this anymore. I'm just going to go back to the first last name I had, and that's the name I'm going to keep because this is going to keep happening. Okay? Six times. Uh, my mother's mother was a love, hate, hot, cold, I love you, I want you to be part of my life, I hate you, get out of my life, I don't want to ever talk to you again. The day that my mother got married was one of those days, and so her mother did not show up for the wedding, right? Okay? And so I've had to ask myself, how would I have responded if that were me? Like, how would I have handled that? <laughs> Not very well. <laughs> Not very well. Cursed parents curse their children, but one of the things that you'll see is that often they take one or more steps away from the curse. Not always, but sometimes they do. My mom stayed married to the same person. My mom never shoved us off on someone else to live. Did my mom do an upgrade without realizing it? Boy, by golly, she did. <laughs> she did. So talk to your aunts and uncles. If you're still young enough where you've got extended family around, talk to them. Ask them about your parents' life as children. What was it like for my mom when she was a kid? What was it like for my dad when he was a kid? Were there any big events in the, that happened in the family? For those of you that are younger and still students, I have some homework for you. This may be uncomfortable because I'm going to ask you to have this conversation with your parents, okay? Three questions I want you to pose to your parents this month. What was it like growing up for you? What was that like, Mom? What was that like, Dad? What were the recurring feelings that you had as a kid? What were the recurring feelings that you had as a teenager, Mom? Dad, and then were there any big events in your family that marked you in a positive or negative way? Were there any big events in your family that marked you in a positive or negative way? God can change a curse into a blessing. 
Next week, I'm going to talk about that in some practical ways. But for now, I simply want to remind you that the Bible is full of people who are just amazing testimonies of God's grace and goodness. Rahab from Jericho, David, David, the one who his father's told, one of your sons is going to become king. And the guy brings out all of his sons, but David. (laughs) There's stuff going on in that family, folks. (laughs) There's stuff going on in that family. And then Joseph from the line of Abraham, sold into slavery, (laughs) forced into prison, and yet God uses it to bless the entire family. Breaking free from a family curse begins with a step, and the first step is a decision to forgive.